You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this week, as I was preparing for this message, I was doing research on the topic of power. And while I was researching, I stumbled upon an online post with a whole lot of buzz. And a person posted, and they asked, what is the most powerful thing in the world? And then there were a whole lot of answers. Now, I found some of those answers really interesting, uh, some of them very intriguing, some of them not so much, and I thought this morning I would share some of my favorites in no particular order. And so here it goes. What is the most powerful thing in the world? In no particular order. Uh, a rhinoceros beetle. That's a, apparently an insect that can lift 850 times its weight. Knowledge, the smile of a baby, the beauty of a woman... Revenge, <laughs> these get better and better. The, the United States Federal Reserve Bank, possibly. <laughs> Let's just be honest. The power to understand. The Holy Trinity, of course, God, for sure. Giving your word. Companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, perhaps. The gamma ray burst. A mother's love for her child. A picture Black holes, your wife if you're married, if not, your boss if you're not. Uh, gravity, money, Dick Cheney, the best, and natural disasters. Now I just, I love, I love the range of these responses. And in our passage this morning, we'll see really loud and clear the theme of power on display. And of course, not the power of Google or Facebook, not the power of money or politics, but instead a different kind of power, the power of God in the gospel, the power of God working through this living message of Jesus Christ, a message about sin and the forgiveness of it, redemption, freedom in him, resurrection, life, and the life to come. And that's really the main idea of this message as well as this passage this morning, and that's this. The power of God is in the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel, meaning his strength, his wisdom, his authority is in this living message of the gospel of Jesus by the power of his spirit. Now, my outline follows the passage Uh, And it really follows the two unique encounters we're going to see in Acts chapter 19. Uh, We'll see a failed exorcism of sorts, and then we'll see a pretty wild protest that almost gets pretty violent. Number one, we'll see the spiritual power of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. And then number two, my second point, we'll see the subversive power power of Jesus Christ in verses 23 through 41. Subversive, of course, meaning to unsettle or to destabilize or to disrupt. It's usually a negative word 
Uh, it's a political word or a spy word, but I'm using that today to describe something good, uh, how the gospel at times brings change and transformation uh, in our confusing world and often in our unfair world makes all things new. Now, before we jump in, just a little bit of context for those of you maybe who are joining us for the first time. Maybe this is your first service with us here at King's Church. For those of you who've maybe kind of been in and out over the last couple months, we have been studying the book of Acts. And where we are in the book of Acts is that Paul, this Christian missionary, has been sent out by the Spirit and by the church. Uh, He's been sent out along with other Christian leaders to go to different places on the map to share the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God. And this morning, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. This is an ancient city that would have been somewhere in western Turkey. Ephesus was the intersection of Roman power and Greek culture and all sorts of superstition and magic and all other types of strange things. Up on the screen, you'll see a modern reconstruction of the centerpiece of that city, which was the Temple of Artemis. Artemis, of course, was the daughter of Zeus and the twin of Apollo. She was the goddess of the hunt, which means she certainly was not from D.C. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was really the centerpiece of that city. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little warning here. What happens in Ephesus is usually really, really weird. A few weeks ago, we were in Athens, of course not uh, the Athens in Georgia, the Athens in Greece, and it was a philosophical environment. It was almost like a, uh, an academic classroom. Uh, and then last week, we were in Corinth, which was a land of vice rather than virtue. But this morning, we will find ourselves in Ephesus, which is a place of spirituality and mysticism and all sorts of other things. Spiritually speaking, we're going from Captain America to Doctor Strange. We're going from Charlotte, North Carolina to Portland, Oregon. We're going from a philosophy classroom to the streets and the spiritual marketplaces of Chittagong, Bangladesh, which really leads us to the first point, the spiritual power of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named, named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I just, I love that. <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a whole lot of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see in this first encounter a heavy focus on the spiritual, on the unseen. We see a, a pretty wild summary statement here in the first few verses about how God was working through Paul in such a miraculous way that anything remotely associated with Paul, like handkerchiefs and aprons, were bringing the power of God. And then we also see this pretty funny encounter that's often called a reverse exorcism. The demon beats them up instead of them casting it out. It's all showing the power of Jesus, uh, the strength of Jesus Christ in the spiritual and the unseen. It's showing us that God is fully engaged in that fight and at times chooses to do things that show his power, that validate his message and push back the darkness. Now, in Africa and Latin America and Asia and most places in the world, the idea of spiritual warfare, this conflict between the good and the evil, the unseen, that's not an unusual idea. Many people in uh, lots of places in the world believe in spiritual realities and things like demons because it helps them to make sense of the world. But here in the West, we sometimes wrestle with these ideas. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, which some of us recently read earlier this year, writes about two fictional demons who are trying to ruin a human being. But Lewis says something interesting. He says, when it comes to spiritual realities, there are two equal but opposite errors we can fall into. On the one hand, we can overestimate their strength. We can give them too much credit. We can begin to ascribe too much power to them and become too interested in them. You might call this superstition. But on the other hand, we can disbelieve them and ignore them completely. We can give no credit to them whatsoever and have no room in our worldview for the unseen. And you might call this substitution. Lewis concludes and says, they themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and greet a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In the West, we really wrestle more so with that second category, substitution. We like to say that everything has a natural cause. Everything has a scientific explanation. Crime, violence, racism, dysfunction, war, greed, all of these things just have natural causes. You weren't raised right. You weren't educated right. Uh, those are bad sociological systems. Those are bad social systems. But here's what Christianity says. It says those things are very important, that those things are factors, that those things most definitely shape and impact the heart for better or for worse. But at the time, at the same time, there are spiritual realities. There's evil in the world, and it's personal. It has a face. And those evil realities can also aggravate the heart. Those unseen realities can impact the heart. 
They can ruin the heart. As the great William Shakespeare said, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. The point is, is if you believe in God, you won't be able to defeat the darkness in your own heart, in your neighbor's heart, in your community's heart, without the strength of God, or in over our head, unless he's helping us. And it takes more than positive thinking at the end of the day. It takes the power that is found in Jesus Christ. Now notice in this first encounter, we meet these seven sons of Skeva. Now that sounds a little bit like a, a rock band, uh, but they were the sons of this Jewish high priest. And apparently they had turned away from Judaism, at least traditional Judaism, and they started to practice exorcism. Uh, Jewish exorcists were essentially known for their strange Hebrew incantations. And in Ephesus, they were very attractive because they were seen as another type of sorcerer. Uh, they could make a lot of money by selling blessings and uh, all sorts of things like that. And so what likely happened here is that these seven sons of Skeva had watched Paul. They had watched Paul in his ministry. They had watched Paul in his teachings. They had watched the power of God working through Paul in a very unique way. And they heard the name of Jesus attached to that. And so they decided they were going to try to cash in on that name and try to use that name, and we see that they get pretty embarrassed. They come across a man who's actually possessed, and as demons usually do in the New Testament, they testify to the power of Jesus and use the human being almost as a dummy, uh, and them the ventriloquist. The demon says, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? As I said, I just, I love that. In other words, he's saying, I know I can beat, I know I can't beat Jesus. I know I can't beat Paul, but who are you? You have zero power over me. Uh, the result is that he gets filled with rage and he beats these guys up pretty bad. Uh, Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, asked, who won the battle? He says, if when the fight started, you were wearing pants, and when it was over, you were no longer wearing pants, you lost. <laughs> Another pastor comments on this more seriously and says, the demons knew Paul. He was famous in the spiritual underworld and even in hell. But as Christians, are our names known in hell? As Christians, when we move about, does it cause reverberation in the kingdom of darkness? It's a great question. After these guys get beat up, the result is that the whole city hears about it. The book of James says, even the demons believe and shudder. And many in Ephesus saw that firsthand. And so the name of Jesus was lifted up, and many people who had practiced dark magic or who were involved in what we might call the occult, uh, they came and they repented. They took their books, uh, they, they burned them, and presumably became believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the big application point on this first point isn't about Halloween or Harry Potter. The point here is that in Jesus Christ, we have spiritual power. And spiritual power is needed. It's needed to change. It's needed to resist 
the work of the evil one in our lives and the work of the evil one in our community. But today, there are a lot of sons of Skeva running around in our society today. You might call them philosophy or sociology or politics or education or science or psychology or perhaps even religion. Now, all of those things can be good and they are good, but it's only in Jesus where we find spiritual power. It's only in knowing him that we can find true peace. The text continues. We see a little bit of a transitional statement about Paul's travel plans, and it really gives us a preview of what's coming in the book of Acts. Uh, But as we all know, travel can sometimes get frustrated, and what's about to happen is going to be the last time that Paul will be in the city of Ephesus. And it's really my second point, which starts in verse 23. About that time, there arose no disturbance concerning the way, that is, Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged, And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples, that is, other Christians, would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis! of the Ephesians. So in this second encounter, we have a massive protest. There's a lot of confusion, and some people don't even know why they're there. They're just shouting and running around. Paul and others have been here for years, and he's been teaching about Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus. He's been connecting the dots to people about Jesus, and many people have believed. But as real faith starts to take root in their hearts, real changes also start to develop in their lives. This is essentially what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Uh, They see the light of Christ, and things begin to change. They start seeing their personal identity differently. They start understanding the role of God in the state differently. They view love and sex and marriage differently. 
They look at money and security and ethics and truth and the church. All of these things start to change. And what's happened here is that for some of the Ephesians, these changes in their fellow citizens were bothersome. They found these changes in their fellow citizens to be what we might call problematic, a new favorite word. It's affecting them, and it reaches a boiling point. And so the city goes into an all-out protest against Paul, who is the representative of the Christian message. Now, notice in this encounter with Demetrius, he is a silversmith. His job is to make these little silver shrines of Artemis. People would buy these little shrines. They would take them to that temple, the centerpiece of the city. They would have those shrines blessed, and then they would go back to their house, and they would place them in a place of significance. They were called idols uh, because people worshipped these for security and blessing and identity and all sorts of other things like a god. But notice Demetrius has grown very upset. He zeroes in on the problem. This guy, Paul, he's, in, he's, he's come to town, he's been in town, and he's, he's teaching a message that's leading people to believe gods made with human hands are not gods. Now, for him, that would be a big, big problem when you make your living off making man-made gods. It would be one thing if this was a philosophical discussion like our think roundtables. Are these man-made gods real gods or not real gods? But if when you get up in the morning and you put a big box of man-made gods on a table somewhere to provide food for yourself and your family, it's a big problem if somebody's come to town and he's teaching a message that's leading people to no longer purchase your product. So in verses 25 through 27, Demetrius lays out his concerns. If Paul continues teaching and speaking, our trade is going to lose its good name. The temple will lose its prestige. And even Artemis herself, the one who's worshipped here in Ephesus and around the world, will be discredited. And so he starts to get people in Ephesus riled up. Now, it's important to point out here, just like in a lot of places in the Bible, as well as most lived experience as a Christian, the gospel on the surface is not what offended Demetrius. The gospel on the surface is not what offended Demetrius. You don't see him saying here that he's mad about the claim that God became a man. You don't see him here being offended about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He's not upset about the invitation to accept Jesus into his heart. Most people don't get upset about those claims. What was agitating Demetrius was the implications of the gospel, that it brought changes in people's lives, particularly how the gospel impacted his trade. He started to look at his receipts at the end of the day, and he's starting to ask, what's happening in Ephesus. Why aren't people buying these like they used to? Something must have happened to change the minds or the convictions of my fellow citizens. And that thing, of course, was the message of the gospel, the message of Paul, the message of Jesus Christ. This is a great reminder for us today that most of the time, even still today, 
Christianity generally only gets dicey with other people when the implications start to get fleshed out. Many people are indifferent to the gospel on the surface, but when the implications of knowing Jesus Christ are fleshed out, that's often when the pushback happens. That's why John the Baptist loses his head. It's why most Christians in the New Testament are fed to the lions. When the gospel changes what we do or don't do, how we view things or people, it can sometimes, unfortunately, cause tension with others. But we don't serve a compartmentalized God. He's Lord over all. He's good. He loves all. He wants all to know him. And his truth and mercy is good for all. The text continues and tells us the crowd gets really pumped up. They're angry, and they all start shouting in one voice, Great is Artemis! And the crowd grows and grows. They grab two of Paul's friends, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they all march down to the theater together. And for two hours, they shout at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis! of the Ephesians. It's religious and national and economic pride all tied into one. Eventually, the text tells us the town clerk comes, who's kind of the chief administrator there in Ephesus, and he gets the crowd to stop. He lays out a nice case in verses 35 through 41, and finally, the crowd disperses. Nobody's hurt, and Paul lives to see another day. Now, I mentioned subversive means to unsettle or disrupt or to destabilize. It's usually a negative word. It's a spy word or a political word, but I'm using it to describe something really good here in this second part of the chapter, how the gospel at times brings change to our confusing and sometimes unfair world. And here's what I mean. Paul knew that a lot of the practices and the ideas that he found in Ephesus were not true, that they were not good for people. But notice, as a Christian, he doesn't resort to denouncing someone to beat them into submitting to the Christian faith. He doesn't start a rally against the temple for Jesus. His goal isn't even to boycott the shrines. He's not even trying to hurt anybody's bottom line. Paul's primary emphasis, as it always is throughout the New Testament, is teaching about Jesus. It's about proclaiming the gospel, his forgiveness, his resurrection from the dead, and the life to come. He believes in the power of the gospel to change a whole life. And at Ephesus, he's been speaking this gospel, this message about Jesus, who's the Savior, This message about the God who does not live in temples built by human hands. A God who is above it all. He knew that once that was embraced, once that was digested, once that was understood, it changes everything. It would be medicine to the soul. It begins to make things right side up. To heal the things that are sick within us. To shed the truth on right and wrong. Now, no doubt, in a room like this, some of us have careers and callings where it may be appropriate to rally 
or to protest or to deconstruct someone's flawed idea or even to increase to decrease someone's bottom line. I understand civic duty and if you're fighting for the truth in some sector of society for goodness to prevail in the world, thank you. But we're reminded here that for someone's heart to truly change, for our communities and our nations to truly change, it takes the love of God. It takes Christ himself transforming a heart. And this is exactly how the gospel has worked throughout history. This powerful, uh, this powerful message of the gospel reached ears and saturated hearts, and the implications of that gospel started rocking the world. A self-giving ethic replaced a self-centered ethic. Forgiveness replaced revenge. The realization that every human being is created with equal worth and dignity by their creator and, and deserves respect and honor started to take root. It swept societies. It changed dominant ideas. It established the concept of human rights. It brought down slavery. It brought women's suffrage. It blew up bad ideas and continues to blow up bad ideas and be a catalyst for change. Yet if we're being real, many still don't keep the main thing the main thing. Many Christians don't see this message, the gospel, as the power of God to save and to change. And we resort often to criticism or writing people off. And I would just confess this is very easy to do. It's easy to point out flaws in people. It's easy to pick things off that are wrong with the world. That's a really screwed up person. Something's off about them. That's just a totally idiotic and illogical idea. That's easy to say. But it's actually harder to share the gospel, to keep the main thing the main thing, to explain to people who think differently than us that there's a Savior that has come that redemption is possible, that God's grace is enough, that he can turn the shrines of our heart into a place where his spirit dwells powerfully. It's a great reminder that the message of the church and the life message of every Christian is not about the fact that everything is wrong. The message is about the power of God to transform a life, to heal our hearts, to mend us to health. It's good news, and that good news changes the way we see each other, the way we understand ourselves, and the, the way we relate to the world. Now, as this chapter ends, as I mentioned, this is Paul's last time that he'll ever be in Ephesus. He essentially gets chased out of the city. But within 100 or 300 or 500 years, Christianity is going to be everywhere. It's going to be powerful everywhere. And that didn't just happen because, say, uh, the sword or uh, democracy or messaging. It happened because the church was moved by Jesus Christ. The church was willing to give themselves away for others. They were filled with a generosity and a hope. They had a bigger vision. They understood power when Jesus Christ was born into the world, he left all of his greatness and power behind. 
He gave himself away. He took his hands off of his life. He emptied himself of his glory and his prestige so that we could become beautiful. And when Christians came to understand this, they realized that for the first time in history, the only time that there was a faith coming into the world that said this is ultimate reality. No other religion had ever said that, and no other religion has said it since that God Almighty gave himself away. That the heart of ultimate reality and ultimate living is not to hold on to power, but to give ourselves away. To give ourselves away to other people, to die daily, to give ourselves up for the good of others. And this is precisely what God did for us in Christ. He gave himself away. He died on a cross. He gave up his power that we might live. And that changes everything. When we grasp that, that changes the way we see power. It changes the way we see the purpose of our lives. It changes the way we see God. As we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, let us reflect on this wonderful passage, what it teaches us, what it reminds us of. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.